Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. I'm your host, Casey Davis. And today for book chat, that's what I'm calling this new series of episodes. <laughs> um, we have Dr. Pooja Lakshman. Did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, Lakshman. Lakshman. That's like really Lakshman. something I should have asked before you got on. No but worries. Here we are. <laughs> so tell us who you are, what you do. Yeah. So I am Dr. Pooja Lapshman. I am a perinatal psychiatrist by training. I specialize in women's mental health and I've been in practice clinically for almost the past 10 years. Um, I'm also a, uh, a writer. I write regularly for the New York Times and my debut nonfiction book, Real Self Care, is just out. And on top of that, I also am the founder and CEO of Gemma, which is a women's mental health community focused on equity and impact. So I have a bunch of different day jobs, as most people do these days. And I have been a fan of yours, Casey, and of Struggle Care probably for the past year or so. I think you came on my radar. Yeah, I'm just really excited for this conversation because it feels like there's a lot of overlap in our points of view. Yeah, let me tell you, reading through this book was... It was like yelling, yes, over and over. <laughs> and I even got to the the um, chapter on boundaries. And I was like, oh, I need to skip this chapter because I'm in the process of putting together a book proposal for a book on boundaries. And I was like, I could already tell we have very similar <laughs> perspectives on this. And I'm somebody that like when I'm writing something, I try to avoid things in a similar space because then it gets in your head. Yep. And then you're like, well, how do I say that differently? And who did I get that from? And did I get that from someone? But I just loved this so much. I say often on this podcast that I hate the term self-care because of the like commodification, pop psychology, sort of like wellness scammy aspect of it. Yeah. And you actually say something in the very beginning of the book. And I kind of want to delete off just by reading this couple of sentences, because this is something that I talk about a lot. So you talk about someone coming into your office and talking to you. Dr. Lukshman, I feel like crap. Everything feels like a chore. I'm constantly on edge and I feel like it's my fault because I'm not doing self-care, but it's not their fault and it's not yours. In reality, the game is rigged. By focusing on faux self-care, what I call the products and solutions marketed to us as remedies, we've conceptualized self-care all wrong. Faux self-care is largely full of empty calories and devoid of substance. It keeps us looking outward, comparing ourselves with others or striving for a certain type of perfection which means it's incapable of truly nourishing us in the long run. So I love that that's how you begin the book because I feel as though my experience with self-care for so long felt as though it was one more thing on my to-do list. Like I'm coming to this idea of self-care because I'm overwhelmed, overburdened, burnt out, and I need to be cared for. And often it's like, because nobody's caring for me, so I guess I'll do it myself. And what you find a lot in the wellness space is just this prescription for more things to do. And it ends up feeling like, okay, so it's my fault I'm burnt out because I'm not engaging in these tasks. But in order to get unburnt out from my never-ending to-do list, I need to add things to my to-do list. Right. It's completely cream-making. And we get stuck in the rat race and the hamster wheel. And, you know, as a psychiatrist, the lens that I bring to this is in real self-care, I'm distinguishing between methods 
versus principles. So like going to get a massage, going to a yoga class, taking a bubble bath, that's a method, right? It's another thing to do. Like you said, Casey, it's another thing on your to-do list. And especially as women, especially if you're a woman of color, especially if you're a parent or if you're neurodivergent or have any type of you know issue that it makes it a little bit harder for you, um, those methods just end up as another task on the to-do list to feel guilty about. And the reason it feels that way is one, because of quite frankly, white supremacy and capitalism that have our entire social structure, you know, have us all swimming upstream, but also because we haven't done the internal work of getting those principles and actually letting us receive the methods. So the perfect example is like the patient that comes in and is like, you know, I finally worked up the nerve to take an afternoon off and I booked a massage for myself and I spent $200 on this like lovely massage. But then I spent the whole time on the massage table worried about my to-do list. I didn't actually feel invigorated. And then I came back to my desk and I had a gazillion emails and I felt like I needed to make up for all that lost productivity. The reason that happens is because you're trying to employ a method without doing the internal work of the principles. And so in real self-care, I am prescribing these four principles, which are not anything like profound. They're like the principles that you talk about as well, right? Setting boundaries, developing self-compassion and having a new type of conversation with yourself, understanding like what really matters to me, what are my values? How do I actually choose my values? And I created a tool for this called the Real Self-Care Compass. And then the fourth principle is that is about power. Like this is essentially about us reclaiming our power and our energy from these systems of oppression and putting it back into ourselves. And then if you are somebody that does have more resources and does have privilege, part of your responsibility is to be able to put some of that energy back into your community and back into the folks that are lower on the ladder than you. That's the process of real self-care. And so the other important piece here is that real self-care is not just, you know, a 15-minute meditation, right? It's not just like taking time out of your day. It's actually, it needs to be threaded into every single big life decision you make. It's in how you choose your life partner. It's in what type of career you decide to pursue. It's yes, it's about your leisure, quote unquote, leisure time. I mean, who actually has leisure time? Like that's kind of laughable, but it's like in your entire life, it's about all of the big and little decisions. That's real self-care. And so it's a way to be, it's a verb. It's not a noun. It's less about the thing. And it's much more about the process that you take to get there. And I think that's where people, you know, that's where I'm like anticipating that there's going to be people that are adding me because they're like, well, what about, I love my yoga. I love getting my mani-pedi, you know, like, are you saying that I need to be ashamed of myself and that I need to feel guilty for getting my mani-pedi or, you know, having my Starbucks turmeric latte or whatever. I don't even know if Starbucks makes turmeric lattes. No, I'm not saying that like, those are bad. I'm just saying that those are band-aids. And sometimes we need band-aids, right? Like it's okay. It's just that's not going to do anything to actually fix the problems in your life or to fix the real problem, which is the social structures. Mm -hmm. And what I love about that idea, the way that you've approached this book, it reminded me a lot of when people ask me about different like organization methods and ways to keep your house clean and talking about, you know, there's a difference between 
a system and a philosophy. And not every system works for everybody, right? Like some people want to Marie Kondo their clothes. Some people want to, you know, have everything in a clear jar. Those are systems. Some people want to have a schedule that they clean this time, this time, this time. And not everybody is going to fit into a system. But the philosophy, you know, and in my book where I try to talk about principles that we can internalize that will change our relationship to our space. I feel like you have done much the same thing in your book, talking about principles and a philosophy that changes your relationship to yourself. And so instead of piling on more things to do, you're teaching people how to reorient their relationship to themselves within that to-do list so that they, when they approach that to-do list, which is still going to be there after the mani-pedi, right? They're able to do so in a way where you can find sort of sustainable movement and sustainable care. And there was one piece as you were talking that I really wanted to point out because I loved when you had this little faux self-care versus real self-care chart, And you talk about how faux self-care is prescribed from the outside, whereas real self-care originates from within you. But here's the part that I love that you said. You talked about how faux self-care is a noun and real self-care is a verb. But when you talked about faux self-care, a common example, yoga class, meditation app, face cream. When you talked about real self-care, you said the internal process that goes on for you before you make the choice to attend the yoga class, listen to the meditation app or put on the fancy face cream. And I feel like that is, that's like your book summed up to me because <laughs> this process by which we come to that decision to, to do X, Y, Z. If we come to it from a place of, I have to get this done. I, I'm being perfectionistic. You know, I'm failing if I don't do this. Like you said, it just like rings hollow. And we find ourselves taking in every new self-improvement book, every new sort of self-care thing, and then kind of almost like burning out from self-improvement in that journey. And one thing I didn't want to skip over is I, I really appreciated how at the beginning of your book... You have a specific chapter before we even get started where you say a word on identity, privilege and systems of oppression. And you talk about how the book is mostly oriented towards women. And you talked about the definition of women that you're sort of working with, which is from Silvia Federici, Mm -hmm. who is an amazing, iconic Italian feminist scholar whose work for anybody who's listening, go check out all of her work because she is like... She's amazing. The real deal. So, (laughs) well, I love the quote that you have from her where she was asked to define the term woman. And she said, to me, it has always been mostly in terms of a political category. And you go on to say that I went, I used the word women inclusively to mean all people who suffer under oppressive conditions that have typically been associated with the female sex, which includes queer folks, trans and non-binary people and intersex and agender people. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose to start the book that way? Yeah. So really over the past five or six years, as I've been doing more advocacy work, if we call this advocacy work, which I think is essentially what it is, um, and writing for the New York Times and other places. I'm Even though I'm a psychiatrist, I am always centering our mental health in terms of our collective suffering because social determinants of health, your identity, the color of your skin, how much money you have, um, the family of origin that you come from, all of those things impact how you feel about yourself and then also what choices and decisions are even available to you. And I think 
as a psychiatrist, you know, psychiatry, to be frank, has a pretty shoddy track record when it comes to accounting for these things. And, and not just for women, but for, you know, for queer folks, for gay folks, for for black people, you know, the list of psychiatry sins is long and extensive. And so I really have felt like my specific place inside this conversation as a psychiatrist, as a brown woman, has been to make that missing link between personal agency and collective suffering and then collective change. And and it actually comes back from from my own personal history. So I'm 39 years old at this now as I'm putting this book out into the world, but about a decade ago, I was went through a very very traumatic time in my life and dynamic time in that, you know, at that point I was like in my late 20s, I'd done all the things that I was supposed to as a good Indian girl whose dad was a doctor. You know, I went to med school, went to all the Ivy League schools. I got married. I sort of checked all the boxes off and I had arrived at this prestigious psychiatry training program. And it was like, okay, I did everything I'm supposed to. Where's my prize? Okay. Like now I can try and be happy. Right. It was very much like that, that episode of 30 rock where Jack is like, you know, like, Oh, and and I'm allowed to be happy. Right. And I couldn't, I didn't know how I was, I was empty on the inside because I had followed everybody else's rules and everybody else's solutions. And on top of that, I felt deeply powerless as a physician because I thought I was going into medicine to actually help people. But instead, I was treating a patient who's homeless or unhoused, I should say. And the only solution that I could provide was Zoloft. But what he Mm. really needs is housing. Or I had a patient who, you know, lost her job because she lost childcare for the third time in a row. And it's like, well, yeah, I can I can do therapy with you. But that's not going to fix our broken workforce issue. Like that's not going to do anything for toxic capitalism. So I was just pissed. I was really angry and really destructive. And I um, left my marriage. I moved into a commune in San Francisco that was focused on female sexuality and, and female orgasm. I dropped out of my program, my residency program. And I spent two years really chasing like woo-woo wellness, just chasing all of these spiritual solutions, you know, and I thought that the answer could come outside of me, you know, like what you were, what we've been talking about, like methods versus principles, right? I adopted this method, this practice that I thought would solve all of my problems. But at the end of those two years, I realized that actually, no, like nothing outside of you can fix your problems. There's never going to be a solution that someone else can prescribe, whether it's me, whether it's you, Casey, whoever it is, right? Like you have to actually do the work in your own life of understanding what you need and making those hard choices. And, and I was deeply heartbroken at that time I left the group. And of course, like, you know, years and years later, I found out through the media that the story was really dark in this group and and it was a cult because they always end up being cults and and you know i went through my own psychoanalysis <laughs> it was a cult because they always are <laughs> right um, um and i went through my own psychoanalysis and my own you know and and had to come to terms with that but like really the seeds of this book came out of that you know and like the fact that there is no one right answer actually there's hundreds and hundreds of answers mm-hmm. and all of the answers are actually small right because the path to change is just one small step after another and you i think do this brilliantly in your work too where it's like 
No, like there's not one just like big transformational thing. There's not one life organization system that is just going to like fix it all. There's just these small choices and you have to do the, you have to be the one to know what's going to work for you. And over time you will find your path and you will keep making those small choices, but there's no magical panacea here. The amount of cults that I think we all join, because I had my own like high control group experience in mm. sobriety. Mm. Yes. Okay. So before we get any further, let me, let me pause for a word from our sponsor and we'll come right back. Is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life? Here's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence a great term life insurance policy. I can't believe that I am 37 years old and I am excited about life insurance, but life comes at you fast. I feel like yesterday I was 25 and I wasn't thinking about stuff like this. But when my husband and I got married and we started having kids, it was one of the first conversations that he brought up. Really, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead, knowing your family's protected if something else unexpected happens. And I feel like I sleep better at night knowing that if something were to happen to he or I, that the other one could take care of our family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It's all online and on your schedule. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. Just apply when it's convenient for you. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So don't be somebody who finds when tragedy strikes, you're wishing that you would have made this choice. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at Meet fabric.com slash struggle. That's meetfabric.com slash struggle. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash struggle. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. I'm someone who happens to believe that the chore of feeding myself is one of the most annoying care tasks. And that's why I really like Factor. And when I say I really like Factor, I mean, they shipped me some food and told me to eat it and make an ad. And I not only did that, but then I went back and spent my own money and bought more of them. And I can't wait till the box gets here. That's because Factor really does make eating easier. And this was on the heels of a doctor's appointment where I got very strict instructions to give my body better nutrients. So wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And they actually do taste good. You'll get over 35 different options a week to choose from. And even I, a very picky eater, always can find something that I like. I love that they are two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. They all take two minutes in the microwave. Snacks, smoothies, breakfast, dinner. You can discover a wide variety of easy options. Sign up and save now. We've done the math. Factor is actually less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. My own dietitian was stoked when I told her that I'd made this decision. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. So head over to factormeals.com slash struggle50 and use code struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. That's code struggle50 at factormeals.com slash struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. Even my husband says this is the best he's ever tried. And we've tried a lot of these. Okay. So one of the reasons I think that everyone really should go get this book. I think that people individually would really benefit from this. I also think other providers would really benefit from this because... So for me, as, a, as my perspective, as like a white therapist that very much was sort of grown up and taught to do therapy in like a middle-class white environment, when I began to do 
anti-racist work, when I began to unpack white supremacy, decolonization, all this work, it was really easy for me to see these like two big truths, which was people talking about like the problem that we're all suffering from is this systemic problem. It is the systems of power that are disempowering, marginalizing, harming our mental health, our physical, all these things. Like the issue isn't, you know, this is the real problem, basically. And then over here, you had the white wellness culture, right? You had the goop and you had the, you know, girl wash your face where Mm -hmm. they're saying the problem is you just need to believe in yourself and put, you know, jade eggs up your vagina. (laughs) And um, right. So it was like they had the solutions, but they didn't understand the problem. Yeah. And then so many people that were talking about what the real problem was, I found myself being like, so what do we do? Right. So what do we, so then, so then, so now what? Like, (laughs) I, I still feel like I need to be able to help people. And I think as a provider, your book is really beneficial for understanding how we can bridge those two things. Um, I actually heard a TikTok recently and a mutual of mine made this sort of offhanded comment where they were actually talking about intrusive thoughts, but they referenced this idea that you have to find a way to both take ownership of a symptom and distinguish yourself as separate from that symptom. And it made me sort of reflect that like, isn't that all of the therapy journey? Like, I feel like that is my whole growth journey is with every single issue in my life, learning the correct balance of ownership and distinction. Yeah. And your book, I think, does that well. I think your book will do that well for individual people. I think it will do it great for providers that need a little help to bridge that gap between, okay, I can validate why you're suffering. I can validate that it's not your fault. I can validate that it's these systems and these things moving. And we can create some room to get some movement within those. Like all is not lost. Yes. I love that you pulled out that thread because essentially it's the dialectic, right? And that's why DBT and dialectical behavior therapy is so powerful. And in the, the chapter on power in the book, I reference DBT and I talk about both and, right? Which is such to be able to hold that paradox it requires your own emotion regulation, right? Which is a therapy skill that all therapy, you know, that's what we're trying to teach our patients and our clients to not get flooded in those moments when you recognize that, fuck, like the system is just completely stacked against me. And the, the typical response to that is to fall into cynicism, Right. And to just be like, well, nothing matters. You know, I'm just going to go get my mani-pedi and like screw it all because I can't. I'm just one person. I can't change anything. Right. And so in the book, I talk about hope as a skill, which is not a new concept. You know, lots of folks have talked about that. And at George Washington University, where I'm on the faculty, our old chair developed a whole kind of framework around this called the hope modules. And it's sort of like operationalizing. How do you bring yourself out of the cynicism? Not that you're going to be there every day, right? Like I'm hopeless all the time, right? You know, it's, but you've, it's the same sort of like mindfulness where you can put your attention there and then try and come back. And I think that's why this type of work I think is so powerful. And it's a place where mental health professionals, for those of us who, for whatever reason, maybe it's masochism are, (laughs) 
putting ourselves out on social media and doing all this work, I think we sort of bridge that gap between like, okay, yes, I can help people one-on-one, but the world is on fire and I have these skills as a mental health professional. And so like, how do I help folks who don't necessarily have access to therapy or who don't have time or, you know, like understand and bring new language to there is a deeply connected thread between our own capacity to cope and buffer ourselves and the collective social change that needs to happen. It's funny it's that really, you mentioned, oh, mm, so, I was just okay. going to say, it's funny that you mentioned <clears throat> that the wellness piece, because, you know, a couple years ago, when I write about this in the book, I went to Esalen, which is that like gorgeous retreat center on Big Sur. And it was right after Trump had been elected. And it was, it was exactly that. Like I was there for like this, well, like, you know, I was going to get these big questions answered and nobody spoke about what was going on in the world, right? It's just, it was all just very, very focused on your own personal journey. And there's like this navel gazing that happens. Um, so I think it's great that for those of us that are in this space and we're kind of just like, wait, no, like it needs to be a dialogue and there needs to be an ongoing conversation of how to bridge these worlds together. And it's hard to talk about that. My, my therapist friends and I talk about this a lot. It's hard to talk to the general public about these things because going back to sort of you talking about like the methods versus the principles, you know, it's not as simple as what the method is. And everybody wants the prescription. They're like, okay, so if I'm going to, do I leave the relationship? And if you were sitting in front of me, just one person, like we could walk through a series of sort of decision tree thoughts based on your personal values and based on the nuances of your situation and get to a point where you can discover whether leaving is the right thing for you or not. But you can't just say to the masses, it's important that you leave XYZ relationships because it's not true. And But you also can't say... You don't always want to leave because then, you know, you have someone going, should I stay? And I think that both of us are trying to talk about what you said in that little grid, which is the internal process by which we make these decisions, by which we begin to sort of, I I picture it as, you know, if you've seen like almost like a Scooby-Doo cartoon where the walls start closing in and you're squished in. And it's like this process where it's like, how can we start to push back on all sides of us. And just, you know, when, when you're in a crowd crush, they tell you to get your elbows up and and create space for you to breathe so that your chest doesn't get crushed. And I feel like that's the visual I get is like, we can't make the crowds go away. We can't fix the system by ourselves today in this office. Right. But like hope is a skill and there is a way by which working together, like we can get your elbows up, like we can create enough room for you to breathe. And then we can sort of assess, like, how do we get out of the crowd? And it's interesting because like you said, with the yoga example, there's nothing specifically to prescribe in. I did read in your book boundaries where you say that it's the distance between or the space between people. And I love that because the definition I've always used which my supervisor taught me is that boundaries is where I end and you begin. It's that invisible line. And it's similar to that conversation about boundaries because I did a series on boundaries one time that confused everybody because I said, you know, asking someone not to speak to you that way is not a boundary. It's a request. Like boundaries mm-hmm. aren't about what you're asking someone else to do. Everyone got really confused because, well, my therapist said that like a boundary is telling my mother-in-law not to speak to me that way. 
And my response to that was like, saying it is the boundary. Like the boundary is I stand up for myself. Right. And you, I think in this book, and I know I feel like I'm just complimenting you this whole time, but it really is a fantastic book. I'll take book. it. I'll take it. <laughs> you do so a hard good to job. hear. <laughs> <laughs> but you do a good job of illustrating that process where it's mm. like, you know, I think we, a lot of us get stuck in that rut of I'm trying to have boundaries and I'm telling my mother-in-law not to talk to me that way. And she just keeps doing it. So I must be failing at boundaries and sort of getting in there and going, well, the boundary isn't whether you succeed at controlling her behavior. Right. You like can't the control boundary. the outcome. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. boundary is like the process you went through where you decided that you were worthy of standing up for. Right. Right. You know, I think, you know, the key piece to this with real, whether it's real self-care or struggle care or, you know, whatever lens you're bringing to it is that you need other people in your life who are also asking different types of questions, trying to have these different conversations. And, you know, at Gemma, one of the things we have these WhatsApp threads, and that's a space where me and my partners who are also psychiatrists, you know, can engage with people in our community and sort of like, help inside these different types of conundrums. And, you know, one of the things that obviously boundaries comes up all the time, also like things like self-compassion, you know, in the same way that you talk about it, Casey, where it's like, it's not just like affirmations or mantras. It's actually like the conversation that you're having with yourself. And just earlier today, somebody posted on our WhatsApp about like feeling bad because she's a single mom and like feeling like she can't do everything and that she's a bad mom. And, you know, kind of like getting into, well, like, what are the systemic factors that are impacting you, right? Like, this isn't actually your fault. You feel this way because you're unsupported by a system. And then again, not falling into hopelessness, but being able to name it, like, this isn't burnout, this is betrayal. You know, as I've talked about before, like, it's like, when you name the external factors, it gives you permission to make some of this space, like as we're talking about with the elbows, you know, like this isn't just me being lazy or not good enough. This is actually. And are you system. saying the betrayal is by society? Yes. Society yes. has betrayed. The quote you have in your book that says other countries have social safety nets. The USA has women. So that's Jessica Calrico's quote. And she's a sociologist and is amazing and has been studying this. And essentially, yeah, like it's like we women are picking up the slack for where our social systems and our safety net has left us behind. I mean, this has been for eons, right? It's not anything new. But to recognize that and then understand that the care work is you taking back your power and you giving yourself time and energy and not constantly in this race of continuing to suffer inside a system that wasn't built for you. Did you read Fair Play by Eve Rotsky by any chance? I did. Eve is actually a great friend of mine. She blurred the Oh my book. God, I love Eve. She's great. Yes. Okay. Yes. So What's funny is that I thought about that book a lot when I was reading your book because I feel like that's another book that talks about like the real issue is systemic. Like it's not your fault. It's systemic, but we're not going to leave you there. Like we are going to actually talk about a process by which you can make your life more, you know, more full and more. And she doesn't just prescribe method, although she has a great method. Yes. And I feel like y'all's books mirror each other a little bit in that it's like, yes, the issue is systemic. Yes, the issue is all of these things. But 
we have some answers that can help you not through prescriptions of everything. Everybody needs to do the same thing, but of leading you through um, things that can help you in your process of your relationship with, in your case with your own self and in her case with your partner. And if I may be so bold, I feel like maybe my book is similar in that, you know, here are like, this isn't your fault. This is really systemic in nature. This is really unfair on some societal levels. Um, your barriers are real, whether they are systemic or, you know, health related. And there are some principles that can help you sort of reimagine your relationship, whether it's, you know, with your space. And so everyone should run out and just buy that as a trio, right? Revolutionize <laughs> your relationship with yourself, your space and your partner. And um, I think you'll be in good shape. <laughs> well, that is the ultimate compliment because Eve is just wonderful. And I really respect her work. And I think that's exactly what I'm trying to get at with real self-care that we do have some agency. Yes, we can't fix everything, but there is this small pocket in our own lives, in our own relationships, in our own ecosystem that we can exert self-efficacy. I'm so sorry. My cat uh, no, don't like be sorry. We're going... never sorry about cats on this podcast. <laughs> we love cats. Um, I have two. They routinely interrupt podcasts. Um, no, listen, one of the things that I think is actually genuinely important on like a mini advocacy level. And I say this all the time. I'm not suggesting our advocacy, our activism ends here, but in some ways, in small ways, it can begin here. Is that like rejecting this idea that as women in a professional moment, we are supposed to pretend like the rest of our life doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, mm -hmm. I, oh, sorry, I have cats. Or like, sorry, my <laughs> children are like crying in the background. Or like, oh God, I'm sorry that the generator went on. Where, you know, where I feel like yes. I... I want to start asserting myself in professional spaces as like, yeah, I mean, listen, I am the social safety net of this country. So like <laughs> you can't have that and want me to pretend like, you know, you're not going to get interrupted. Yes. In this yes, moment. Yes. And so um, I'm glad. L who? What's your cat's name? So this is Fifi. Can we get a look at Fifi, please? Fifi. Come here. Oh, goodness. Now she doesn't want to. You'll see her butt shortly, I'm sure. We'll get a okay, nice cool. visual of that. Um, <laughs> we always do. How old is Fifi? Fifi is almost five, and she has an older sister, Kitty, who is a black cat. Um, so we we are definitely a cat family here. And so I feel I that kinship. I you. Yeah, I feel that kinship. If there's one thing I love, it is a product that is affordable, good for the environment, and saves space. And that's why I'm back to plug Earth Breeze, which is a detergent sheet. It is like throwing a dryer sheet into the wash, except instead of a dryer sheet, it is detergent. And it works really well. It keeps things really clean and you can do a subscription service so that it shows up at the right time. So not only do you not have to think about it when you're at the grocery store, you don't have to buy huge plastic jugs. You don't have to lug those heavy things home and you can feel better about your laundry. Making laundry a little bit easier has always been the name of the game with Earth Breeze. It fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. And that's it. Really, you just throw a sheet in with the laundry and watch it dissolve with any cycle, hot or cold. No measuring, no mess, and best of all, no wasteful plastic jug. Switching to Earth Breeze would not only make laundry easier for you, but easier on the planet. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash struggle. That's earthbreeze.com slash struggle for 40% off your subscription. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilled Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. 
The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Okay. So here's how I want to wrap up. Okay. I feel like we could talk forever, but there's this one part that I am so overjoyed to see in a book about self-care. You have a little blurb in here where you say, you know, how to practice real self-care when you suffer from a clinical mental health condition. And this amazing sentence, wellness has gotten things a bit mixed up when it comes to mental health and self-care. Right now, there's a misconception that you can self-care yourself out of a major depressive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, however, mental health conditions are neurobiologic and require trained professionals to provide psychotherapy and sometimes medications to help you feel better. Instead of thinking of self-care as a tool to treat a specific condition, think of it more like a spot test to see how you're doing. If you know that your daily walk in the park with Fido is your nourishing time, yet you find that you just can't bring yourself to take the dog out, or if your guilt is so intrusive and constant that you feel completely powerless to stop it, that could be a sign that you need to seek professional help. Once the condition has been treated, it becomes more possible to enact principles of real self-care and to put practices in place. And I loved this because that is what happens, right? We get told, are you depressed? Go outside every day, the sun. You, we've been evolutionary biology to be in the sun. And, you know, you're depressed because of the blue light. And so I feel this is the same thing with house, right? Where it's like your the, the state of your house, it really reflects the state of your mind. So like clean up your house. Your mind isn't so messy. It's like, okay, but this is the symptom. Right, right. Like you can't be right. like, do the thing. I don't know. I just, I can't stand it. Um, the and solution too is another oh, place. Sleep, where the yes. temp- right, right. Yes. Yeah. But it's, it is, it's that like gentle, it's like getting curious with tenderness with yourself of, okay, I know that this thing, I mean, people are self-serving. And that's a good thing. Like we are for our own good. And so if I find myself in a place where it's like, this is the thing that's for my good. And I find myself not able to do it, not wanting to do it, resisting it. That's not a failure. That is, um, like you said, a spot check to have yeah, some like data curiosity. Yeah. 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 Of like, mm, we need to, we need to reach out. We need a little more support. We need a little right. more uh, love in this moment for ourselves. And, what and I think like. also like thinking of all of these things as, you know, everybody has their own specific program for mental health and well-being. And for some people, it includes medication. You know, I take Zoloft. I'm still in therapy, right? And, and sometimes it includes exercise. Sometimes it includes yoga. You know, it, again, about the decision-making, right? Like there's all of these little pieces and all the pieces come together to create the whole. There's never just one thing. 
as much as we all would deeply like to believe that there's going to be one magic thing, unfortunately. You know what? I, I, th- I said that was going to be my last question, but I have one more that I want to end sure. with. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering because I feel like you had a similar experience when you were eat, pray, loving in a cult. I went through a really intense, um, like a year and a half institution that was really heavily like religious, but more like 12 step and very Mm -hmm. um, like therapeutic community, high confrontation, shaming type of thing. And we did a lot of like affirmations and vision boards and like knee to knee and, and call out groups. And it was just like constant intervention and you know, it was really heavy on the self-care as like a prescription, as a mandate, as a moral obligation. And if we weren't doing it, we felt really guilty. And what I found was when I first broke free of that, I had to spend an extended period of time almost doing nothing, like no introspection. And it wasn't like a destructive swing to the other side, but it's like, I, my journey of real self-care, it couldn't go from a high control self-care environment to just like, okay, I'll just incorporate my authentic natural practices. Like I, I needed that time years to just be like, I'm not getting, I'm not fucking exercising. Like it was like, I had to have that like adolescence, right. Where I'm distinguishing myself as different, where I'm sort of rejecting all these things. And because I was kind to myself in that period of time, it was like when my little like soul and psyche was ready, it started naturally being like, I don't know, I wonder if it would feel good to exercise. Now, did you have that experience? Mm-hmm. Like, did you have like a gap where it was like, I can't even make myself look at this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was many different phases of it. I mean, there was a a very deep depression that was almost suicidal. And there was really a rejection then of any type of mandate or structure of things that were supposed to be sort of like spiritual Mm -hmm. or, you know, for sort of my growth. And I mean, it took me a decade to write this book, really, right? Like it's, it's, it wasn't like some sort of, rushed reaction. It was more kind of like, again, spending almost eight years in psychoanalysis myself on the couch three times a week, talking about that whole experience and trying to wrap my head around it. And then also, you know, my work with patients, like coming to this, like the answer, which is always like, there is no one answer. Right. So yeah, it was that period afterwards was a really, really, really tough time for me. And I was it was also confusing, right? Because you learn so much, you take in, it's like a fire hose when you're in those types of spaces, you you absorb so much. And then it takes years, I think, afterwards to sort through what was real and what wasn't and, mm-hmm. and the way it was all twisted as well. Um, because the nuggets inside those groups are often true in some ways, but then it, it gets a little bit warped. So you have to take that time to sort of untangle what it meant. And and if, um, if this is resonating with anyone, I actually did a podcast on high control groups. Um, it's called Wait, Am I in a Cult? Um, and I actually brought in someone that was doing their master's thesis and academic work on high control groups. And we talked through a lot of these points. Um, so I just feel like there's probably some people listening that are like, wait, this is my, whether it's a 12 step or a spiritual community or a commune or a religion or whatever, like there mm-hmm. really is a very unique process of disentangling from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to even in the, right. And even in the light 
the light, quote unquote, light versions of yeah. like what is commodified wellness and these different yes. kind of communities. There's still these same threads. And when you, when you believe it in your soul and you're so committed to it, there can be this moment where you're like, well, but wait, I thought that this was the answer. And, and I guess I must not be doing it right. I must not be doing it enough. And then when you come to see like, oh, wait, there's many different ways, you know, there's many different paths that can also be a little bit scary to be at that place. So I, I'm glad that you um, mentioned that resource because I think it can, it can be a hard, that's a hard place to be like recognizing that. There's also a free PDF in my shop, uh, strugglecare.com called Healing from Religious Trauma. And a lot of it is about religious trauma, but a lot of it is specifically just about high control groups and some resources, um, specifically in the U.S. to some centers that that basically do like, I don't want to say like de-brainwashing, that's a little intense, but like they study how do you recover? How mm -hmm. do you process through these things? And so that's there too. Anyways, I, I've got to land the plane because otherwise I'm going to take up way too much of your time. Uh, but this has been amazing and I'm so glad to know you now and I'm going to send you a copy of my book. And, um, I think that you and me and Eve should do something together sometime. So I uh, would be honored. I would be so wouldn't honored. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be so fun and so cool. We will make it happen. Um, I can't wait to read your book. And for everybody listening, Real Self Care is out. It is, you can buy it in all the places that you can buy books. There's an audiobook too that I narrated. If you like the sound of my voice, if you're one of those people, <laughs> you can listen to the audiobook and, um, you can find me on Instagram at Pooja Lakshman. Um, I just started a TikTok that's called therapy takeaway. So okay, come see follow how that me and I'll goes. follow you back. Okay, perfect. I will follow you. <laughs> I'm going to learn how to use TikTok in all my free time. We'll see. Um, <laughs> and you've got to um, mention the subtitle. The subtitle of this oh, yeah. book is crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. <laughs> I love that. Um, Dr. Pooja, thank you so much for your time. And I, I really can't wait for this episode to come out and for everybody to learn about your book because it's I don't highly recommend a lot of books and I'm going to add this to the list. Thank you, Casey. It was such a pleasure. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.